0: Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever shifting. And now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. My guest today is John Kabat-Zinn, who is considered the father of modern mindfulness practice. As a professor of medicine, he founded the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts. And this both popularized and added an important experiential and scientific elements to the practice of mindfulness. His aim has always been about greater health and well-being on every level, from the individual medical patient or person trying to optimize their health To society more broadly as well as to the health of the planet as a whole in today's episode we explore what he calls the superpower of awareness going beyond thinking minds and view of self and accessing the depth of who we actually are and of the power of love he describes practices for turning suffering into wisdom john is an amazing person in presence and our conversation is practical Aspirational, and I hope transformative. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, John. It's really great to see you. Nice to be here. I was uh, one of the stories I tell about how we met is that I think this is a true story. I was teaching a mindfulness and meditation class at Google to a room full of Google engineers. And you walked in as though you were one of the students and sat down in the class. And it was just so delightful. As I recall, you even raised your hand and asked me a question. And I thought, oh, man, what am I going to, how am I going to answer this? But it was just super sweet. I remember that day. I remember
1: the room. Yeah. And I was just so pleased by the entire effort in those early years to really bring the dharma into the heart of this new enterprise that I won't call the beast, which was in a certain sense, supposed to be liberating us from all sorts of other beasts, and how important it was to be offering this to people who are in the future. So that they create a future that it's possible to live in present moments.
0: Yeah. So just to unpack that a little bit, this was at Google's headquarters several years ago when I was there doing these trainings for mostly for Google engineers. And it's interesting that you use that word Dharma, which I always, in my, that was always what we were doing, but we were translating translating dharma or translating wisdom and prajna and with this this aspirational idea of can we bring this into the modern work modern workplace and yeah and and it was so great to have your support there especially in those early days as we were very much experimenting and finding our way about how do we teach how do we bring these mindfulness practices, meditation practices, into the world of the corporate world. What year was that? Do you remember? I do. That that was probably like two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight. That you were there. Yeah, I rem- I remember because I it's on
1: my website both of those Google talks because at that point it was very unusual to actually. Film a talk. I mean, who did that? Right. And now, of course, everything is filmed and everything is lo- uploaded to YouTube. So mm-hmm. it's like nobody ever dies anymore. They just migrate to YouTube. <laughs> kind of... I think I have a lot of confidence that it, in some sense, the Dharma does itself,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that wisdom is a kind of intrinsic quality or capacity of life. Mm -hmm. And as part of life, we have the potential and also the, in some sense, the kind of responsibility to offer whatever it is that we feel is potentially illuminating, liberating, calming, nurturing, Mm -hmm. and just whoever's receptive to it, Will benefit
0: potentially, and then pay it pay it forward. I've always, when I, whenever I'm teaching and in these conversations, I always hold that what I heard you just describing as the highest aspiration, right? May may people be transformed, may people be changed and healed, and then there's the secondary, or at least maybe you'll have a few practices, a few tools and practices. If if your life one or the other, transformation is the highest aim, but at least some practical ways that you can take something that you heard or learned during this time that you can integrate into your daily
1: Agreed. life. Agreed. I mean, I agree that you don't want to set the bar so high that it may be super pure and totally right, but nobody gets it and it just doesn't make any sense within the framework of one's life. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you start like with transformation and work backwards. Healing is a very very important element of this work, whether you're at work or at home or whatever you do, family and so forth, that there's all sorts of suffering that's actually intrinsic to being human. So it's not like our fault or anything like that. But So the healing of that kind of suffering, which means learning how to be in wise relationship to it or coming to terms with it, is actually contributes directly to that transformation that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And that healing comes from never stopping learning and out of the learning growing. So there's a kind of an arc, which I think is kind of part of human evolution actually, is like an evolutionary arc that we're, Uh, creatures who are capable of actually learning and just wagging our tongues like this. And you're being able to understand me uh, across thousands of miles and with computers and everything. But even if we're in the same room, the miracle of language, Mm -hmm. I mean, we use it all the time. And of course, it's completely related to thought. Mm -hmm. These miracles are completely taken for granted. Mm -hmm. But when you stop taking them for granted and recognize their power, then Learning actually catalyzes growing, like real growing into ourselves, into adulthood, you might say, or into planetary adulthood, or into compassionate embodiment, or whatever you want to call it. And then that itself contributes to the furtherance of healing, in the way we were talking about, and then that transformation. So I don't see them as actually even linear. I think it's all rolled up into one, and everybody traverses this territory in uniquely different ways. And I I just love that.
0: And of course, as I'm listening to you right now, I'm thinking and acknowledging that all of the people who are listening to you at some point will be having their own conversation with you, absolutely we'll be hearing hearing your words will have wide vast difference depth of what it is you're saying and that to me is so yeah i mean whether it's in in all of our healing this is a lot of how i spend my day job is trying to help people align around what people are saying and listening and how yeah. vastly different it, it can be In all relationships, you know. So
1: there's a certain kind of teneity of beauty in the present moment, which is very fleeting, Mm -hmm. but it has elements of real transformative power because it's kind of uh, uniquely synthesized by a mind in ways we don't understand. And that's where creativity and imagination come into the sort of embodied living in a certain way. and. And if you went back and heard something that impressed you like 10 years ago, some talk or maybe that Google talk that I gave or whatever it is and you go and listen, or I went and listen, I might be completely appalled at what I said and how unskillful it was or how wrong or in some ways or whatever. And it's just So that's a kind of beautiful part of the adventure is that there's a certain lack of precision about it, a certain kind of built-in imprecision that we need to be compassionate about both in ourselves and in each other, mm-hmm. and then understand that in some way, the big picture is a kind of reflection of the enfoldedness of all of that uncertainty in the present moment and how amazingly beautiful that is. And I'm thinking, because I know that you're a parent, just the mystery of having children and grown children and the universe of communication and non-communication in ways that actually are profoundly humbling
0: and also, I guess I would say, enchanting. One of the uh, things that was really striking to me, go- again, going back to where we first met at Google, was the, the paradox or the, the precision and the non-precision the precision maybe precision and you use the word enchantment or flexibility yeah. that there is a precision to the technology that we're using right here we are amazing precision that is allowing these computers to work and the uh, the coding that took that t- that is that took place to make this technology work and i think one of the things that google engineers were enthralled by Letting go of that and being more more spontaneous, listening in a different way, the importance Mm -hmm. of creating more open and safe spaces. And that you can it doesn't mean that you're that you're not precise when you need to be precise. And I felt like I was getting lessons there in, oh, I, I needed to be more precise in how I was describing. Meditation and mindfulness. I needed to be, you know. Sometimes we would bring in the science often, and there was a certain important sense of precision in the science of meditation. Very different, I think, than one's often than one's experience, and that was interesting to me. To that distinction between science and you're you're a scientist and you're a mindfulness teacher. You have both of those parts in you. Yeah, there's an
1: insane beauty in a certain way. And scientists, I think, can appreciate this in a particular way, but engineers in a different way, perhaps, and everybody in their own way, a kind of beautiful matrix, interactive, continually changing matrix between the known and the unknown, or the what one thinks one knows, because often we think we know a lot and we actually don't know half as much as we think we do and then the beauty of the unknown which is not like necessarily a problem it's it's its own like seduction you know, like what's next what is possible and that's where of course imagination and creativity really do come into the picture and it's not just about science and technology but it's like about home life parenting relationships one's living one's life and not missing all one's moments. Mm-hmm. Because it's possible, as Thoreau famously said in Walden, to live in such a way that right right before you die, you wake up and realize, as he put it, that I hadn't lived. Mm-hmm. Because you were so caught up in all of the thinking mind stuff and wanting things to be different that you actually Got it all wrong didn't see your children didn't appreciate didn't weren't there for whatever it was, or were there in body, but weren't there, and they knew it, and then you realize that, and then you die mm-hmm. so it's like so part of this work, whether you're doing it in a corporate setting or in a hospital or in a school or anywhere else, is to actually encourage people to wake up now because there's no time to lose the future is a figment of our imagination there's only this moment and yet we're always living in the past and the future and the present moment kind of gets completely eradicated from and that's the only place where we can actually see hear smell taste touch love understand and know that we're not understanding and then live that so that it's like it's not like I'll be okay in the future when I've meditated for 30 years you'll just be 30 years older but you won't be any better off the point is not to improve on yourself it's to recognize your beauty now because there's no improving on it and just get older and things disintegrate that's kind of like just the second law of thermodynamics and you know that everything is going more towards disorder and entropy, and, and recognize the miracle of, as Thich put it, the miracle of the present moment, the miracle of mindfulness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: of the ability to be awake and aware in this timeless, mm-hmm. non-dimensional moment. Mm-hmm. And it's like insanely illuminating and uh, life-supporting in a certain way that just opens up enormous possibilities. For anybody and everybody, it's not like you have to be special or you have to go sit in a Zen monastery, as yeah. you're pointing out. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, that's yeah. of course great to do if that's your karma at a certain point in your life. But, but this is the reason I started the MBSR clinic at in the hospital was because I, I felt like, well, hospitals are dukkha magnets, that's there's a lot of suffering. I mean, if you're suffering beyond a certain point, you wind up in a hospital. And you usually don't walk in by yourself. You're carried in on a stretcher or ambulances come. They take you. Where are they going to take you? And unfortunately, with the earthquake and 22,000 people's lives just wiped out in a, in a fraction of a second or day. So hospitals are the place where people go when they're suffering. And so what better place to actually offer some elements of wisdom around how to be in wise relationship to suffering mm-hmm. and actually potentially transform
0: that suffering into wisdom yeah the uh, the messages i'm hearing one is don't wait but you don't have to wait in fact i was just meeting with a friend of mine who was just given a a prognosis of having 3 to 6 months to live and actually it was a great gift being with her. She was so buoyant, like in a way, somehow for some people, knowing knowing that our actually knowing that our time is limited, but our but our time is limited no matter how old we are. Yeah. So I hear you like like yeah. leaning into to that. And then also we don't need to wait till we're in the hospital either, right? That the sense of waking up to our whatever our whatever our suffering is, we are. Yeah, better not to wait, because
1: it's true. We only have moments to live, Mm -hmm. all of us. And of course, that's a play on words, but it's an incredible opportunity or a kind of wake-up call Mm -hmm. to say, hey, don't take this one for granted, thinking you'll get more. Because every time we breathe out, if somehow the organism, and it isn't up to us, but if somehow the organism didn't take another breath in, it's mm-hmm. over. So every moment, there's a certain way in which we're dying and being reborn, literally, sort of metabolically, biochemically. And it's not that one wants to get sort of maudlinly preoccupied with this, mm-hmm. but to recognize the beauty and the power of, and the gift of the present moment, and then learn, train oneself, actually, to be more in the present moment, and to recognize what keeps us from it, which, of course, is where it intersects with what you do enormously, because it's like the digital world is basically, you know, an enormous force that often is one of perpetual distraction. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, and seduction, because a lot of it's really fun and interesting, or I don't know, appealing in one way or another to one part of oneself. But you can get so seduced and wind up betraying yourself because if you only have 24 hours and you've devoted six or seven of them to stuff on YouTube, it may be the greatest stuff on YouTube, but there's other aspects to life. And if you don't nurture those, then...
0: Is a certain way in which that's its own form of a kind of a disease. Many years ago, I led a, a one-day meditation retreat for a group of Google engineers, and sitting, mostly we sat for the day, and this was for most of them the first time that they've had the experience of what it was like to enjoy silence, enjoy the present moment, and they said, wow, This was transformative. Do we need to quit our jobs at Google and go live in a monastery? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you could. There's something to that. But I think you need to bring the monastery into your day-to-day life. I mean, because you did,
1: as I understand it, spend years in a monastery, right? And not just any monastery. But like a really hardcore Zen, Soto Zen monastery that's like most people wouldn't survive for 24 hours. Just the wake up time and the the ways in which
0: everything is regulated in a particular way. I think part of that training, there's many, many parts to it. But one is turning difficulties and challenges into exciting possibilities. Yeah. Wow, I get to get up at 3.40 this morning. Can you believe it? like isn't That's going to be amazing. And I get to walk in the dark and look at the stars on my way to the meditation hall. Like, wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people don't wake up with that kind of thought. They <laughs> wake up with, what the hell did I sign up for?
0: I had many of those mornings as well. I think it was recently went back, did a, a three-month practice period, and it was like the second morning I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, but that's the beauty of it is that you rapidly recognize that your thoughts, all of our thoughts, are completely out of control. They have a life of their own. And they like they're like a prison. They form certain kinds of boundaries and barriers. Einstein had significant things to say about this. So we live within this kind of prison of our own creation. Mm-hmm which is not the actuality. Okay. So whether it's a Zen monastery or some other kind of form of Dharma practice or mm-hmm. mindfulness practice, the recognition that you only have moments to live really is an invitation to mm-hmm. see the boundless spaciousness of this moment mm-hmm. and to learn how to live inside the, what I call the domain of being as opposed to having a constant agenda for just getting the next thing done. Mm -hmm. And then the recognition is you're sitting with your mind day in, day out for hours at a time, sitting and walking, that the mind has a life of its own and it's just Mm going to do whatever the hell it's going to do. And when you recognize that those are just like weather patterns, that they're not the truth of anything, that you don't have to quit or run away or... Do something else just because your thinking mind is telling you you have to mm-hmm. do that, then you begin to reclaim the full dimensionality of your being, that being dimension, that human being, not human doing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like deeply related to mental health, deeply related to physical health. I mean, all the way down to the level of gene expression, apparently. And of course, affects one's. Level of joy and engagement in the world in a way that is meaningful and that is not self preoccupied and self centering, so that you can actually be of use in the world and recognize that you're part of an infinitely larger web of connectedness and wholeness with other beings, not just human, and with the planet itself, which is like really important an important realization given what we now know about global climate change, warming, all of that kind of stuff, which is really, you could say, science teaching us to be mindful of the body of the planet and its well-being, that you take photographs of the glaciers from space over 50 or 60 years and you realize, like, they haven't changed in 600,000 years and now all of a sudden the glaciers are virtually gone and the ice sheets in the North Pole are like, you know, this... There's open water there for many more months than there used to be within my lifetime, and then Antarctica, the ice sheet, like you know, at the edges, are falling into the ocean. It's like this is a wake up call. This is not different from in the monastery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a wake up call for humanity. So that's mindfulness practice coming out of our technological capacity to sense. And be aware of what the planet's doing. The Amazon and the Congo rainforest, these are spoken of as the lungs of the planet, okay? And it's not just some nice poetic metaphor. They are the lungs of the planet, including the oceans and algae and so forth. And we need to take care of those lungs, because if you eradicate your lungs, I mean, it's a lot worse than what smoking will do to you. And so that's, from that point of view, it's all mindfulness. We are looking in the mirror and understanding what we're doing to ourselves in a way that actually requires us to show up with a different kind of open spaciousness of heart and mind
0: and then intelligence. Well, it's a a subtle and profound shift in a way of being, right? as though we can't shift our economy, as though it's going to to be bad for the stock market or bad for the economy if we shift towards taking care of the planet. It's like this idea of ignoring, as you were saying, use your metaphor, ignoring our lungs, ignoring our bodies Mm. for some material, some sense of material concern. That material concern is so, it's it's important in a way, but it's completely insignificant in comparison.
1: Well, if we think of it as wealth or riches, okay, and concentrated riches, of course, everybody wants concentrated riches and wealth. And capitalism, capitalism does have its kind of way of lifting people out of poverty. China lifted more people out of poverty than any other country ever without... And in some ways, it's more of a capitalist country than the United States in economic terms, but in political terms, like winier, the kind of honoring of the individuals in the society. Mm-hmm. And I think we're really at a, an inflection point on the planet and all governments. I mean, if it's all really about governing, mm-hmm. the first question is, how do you govern yourself? Right? So to go back to Thoreau or to go back to the Chinese Chan masters, it's like, how are you in relationship to experience. Mm -hmm. And then that's a very sort of focused question in a way, but it's also the biggest question in the world because Mm -hmm. the kind of interesting piece is, who are you? Not just how are you, who are you? And if you begin to actually question, who am I? Or what am I? Of course, that's the deepest, meditative koan practice of all, Ramana Maharshi's practice, who are you? And there's the mystery of, as my Zen teacher used to say, open your mouth and you're wrong, attached to any thought that gives you a definitive answer, and that answer will not be anywhere near complete enough. So that's like To me, this is what we're talking about is not just, oh, now everybody's got to go and buy a meditation cushion and sit on it and have pain in their knees and just be a real tough guy for for an extended period of time, and, and you'll get some benefit in the long term from it. And it's like, it's so much not that. It's about a love affair with who you actually are when you realize or recognize even for a brief moment that you're not the story you tell yourself about who you are the story of me and how and then fill in the blank how pathetic I am how fabulous I am or it's the I am part that needs some degree of inquiry and investigation because everybody knows that like In the middle of the night, when things are not going well, you wake up and you know your story's not true, Mm -hmm. but you don't have anything to fall back on. Yes, you do, actually. You have to fall back on what you might call this, Mm -hmm. okay? And if it comes down to, well, how about just this breath? Mm -hmm. Just never mind this breath, just this Mm in-breath, just the pause at the peak of the in-breath. And, okay, now what is it? out-breath. And then you actually give yourself over to attending in that way. I see that as a love affair with the with life and with the domain of being, which so far transcends the narrative, the story of me, or even the story of humanity. That Then we get into this not knowing, and that's where all the creativity and beauty and love lies when we practice in that way. And it would be criminal. At least, this is in some sense why I started doing what I do. It would be criminal to keep that only within sequestered monasteries on mountaintops. I mean, this is like something that well, it's not like everybody should be a Buddhist. No, everybody should be a human being, and then relate to the full dimensionality of that humanity using all of the various things that figured people have figured out over the millennia that what's helpful and meditation the way we're speaking about it is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Is it hard? Yeah, it's the hardest thing in the world, perhaps, except that it's also just the mind saying that it's hard because how hard is it to actually be who you really are? right. right. So a lot of it's more just getting out of your own way and then learning how to be patient and cultivate equanimity so that when the proverbial stuff hits the proverbial fan, either in your mind or outside in the world, you don't lose your mind when you most need it. That's like exercising a muscle. You work with the Mm -hmm. resistance of the weight and nobody likes to, the weight keeps getting heavier the more you do the contractions, Mm -hmm. but, over time, something's starting to grow in that way. The mind wanders. You bring it back. Mind wanders. You bring it back. Mind wanders, and each time you're seeing what's on your mind. And I can't believe fall. that's in my mind too, and I'm identifying with it and I attach to it. And you bring it. You just let it be, and you don't push it away. You just let it be, and you bring your mind back, and you hold it in awareness so that you're not forgetting what's unfolding. That's. I mean, I don't know any other way to describe it but as a love affair with the actuality of being and the miracle of being alive, especially at this particular moment where, you know, the technology alone, like the photographs that we're getting from the infrared web, you know, James Webb space telescope, you want to see where you cut where humans and the earth and the solar system really come from just Go
0: on that website and take a look at the photographs. I'm mulling over your words of a love affair with the actuality of being. And I think I want to bring in our, we each have a book about to come out. And I so appreciated your words, your words about my book. And we were talking as we were preparing about one of of the chapters in my book is called Drop the Story or Dropping the Story, right? Dropping the Story of... Me and opening up to this love affair, and I want to ask you about your book, which I know is about pain and working with pain and I wonder what what's the is there kind of the key practice that you describe about skillful dharmic ways to work with pain in our lives yeah well, when I set up the stress reduction clinic the m b s r
1: program in in at the University of Massachusetts Medical center in 1979. So that's like 43, 44 years ago. The idea was that people don't go to the hospital for fun, usually. They go when there's no alternative. You're suffering. And Western medicine and Western science and biology has come a long way in terms of understanding disease and the causes of disease and potential treatments for disease, especially Infectious disease, just witness how quickly they came up with a kind of vaccine for COVID. I mean, globally, I mean, it's a horrible thing, but they did it in less than a year. Mm -hmm. And that's because of all these sciences that have developed over the past hundred years. There's also this inner dimension of like disease that the Buddhists talk about as dukkha. Sort of like it's the first of the Four Noble Truths, and it's often mistranslated as life is suffering, which is not what it's about at all. It's that there is the challenge of suffering. There is suffering, Now, how are we going to be in wise relationship to it? And so since hospitals function kind of like dukkha magnets in the society, and when the pain gets too intense, that's where you get taken. Why shouldn't hospitals, aside from all of the scientific medicine that they're using to help people with whatever conditions they arrive at, especially the chronic ones where we don't actually know what to do to really be helpful, why not teach people how to contribute to their own liberation from suffering and from pain conditions? We were seeing an awful lot of people sent from the pain clinic. So they actually got rid of the pain clinic in the Department of Anesthesiology after a while. I never understood why, but it had to do with funding. Like the, somehow or other, they would not fund pain therapy. That's insane. What's a hospital for if not for that? But so anyway, the idea of the MBSR program was to have a clinic where doctors could refer people that they no longer knew what to do with but they were still suffering. And then we would teach them these ancient practices and just see what would happen Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in terms of their level of suffering. And we can make a big distinction, as often is done, between pain and suffering. So pain, as they like to say, is inevitable, but suffering, and I'm not sure I love this way of putting it, suffering, they say, is optional. But when it's happening to you, it doesn't feel optional at all. So I want to sort of be as compassionate about that as possible. But there is some wiggle room there for how one is in relationship to the pain, whether it's somatic pain, emotional pain, cognitive pain, social pain, or some giant bolus containing all of that, and how you are in relationship to that versus the suffering. Because the suffering can be worked with in a certain way. And it is possible to have these elements of pain and not suffer. And so that was what it was about. MBSR was set up to be, the stress reduction clinic was set up to be like a safety net to catch people falling through the cracks of the healthcare system and challenging them to do something for themselves that nobody on the planet could do for them. Mm -hmm. It has to do with just how to be in wise relationship with what they're experiencing, especially when it really hurts, whether you want to differentiate it as physical pain or emotional pain or sort of obsessive cognitive contraction or whatever. But mostly we're talking about physical pain, people being sent from the pain clinic and from the Department of Anesthesia and the orthopedic clinic of people with pain and, of course, the general medicine. And so we would train them in all these meditative practices, including mindful hatha yoga, by the way, which is an incredibly important part of it, and see what would happen. And what would happen is that in eight weeks, people who had been suffering with their conditions for eight years were saying things like, I feel like I've got my life back. I feel like I have a way of being with it. And you say, well, has the pain disappeared? No, the pain's the same. I, my headaches are still here. Of course, headaches are the easiest thing to have go away. And so often, but my back pain or my whatever it is like, it's still there? Yeah, it's still there. But it, I have a different relationship to it, okay? So that's where the suffering gets attenuated. And so this book, to come back to that, Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief, is basically meant to be a user-friendly door into that space, into that universe. So it's a very large type, and it's in multiple colors with beautiful illustrations, and then brief encapsulations of the various guided meditations that we've been using for 44 years to help people wake up to this potential dimension of healing that's been here right under our noses, all puns intended, from the very beginning. But that really you need a certain degree of instruction and then a certain degree of, dare I say it, discipline in one's life to actually you practice whether you feel like it or not. And at first it feels very artificial practicing and if it feels very mechanical. Sit down and watch my breath and be in awareness. But the first thing you're aware of is how hard that is that your mind is all over the place and you're saying this is nonsense and it doesn't hurt that much anyway and on and on. I mean, it's like endless. The mind is like just out of control. And it's got its own narratives, it's got its own stories. And what we're doing is we're cultivating access to a different superpower. Mm-hmm. Thought is an amazing superpower, but there's one that we have that's never really developed in school. Now it is, much more, because they're, tra- they're teaching kids mindfulness in elementary school. But when you recognize that awareness is its own superpower and you don't have to get it because you were born with it, mm-hmm. He say, well, awareness of, what do I care? I'm aware of my what? My breath, my body, this table, you know. this It's like, no, don't be so quick to think you understand what awareness really mm-hmm. is. You live inside the mind coming and going, and then you just see if you can just be aware of the mind coming and going without building a big story about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like the image that's often used, as you well know, classically is that the thinking mind is, and the emotional turmoil of the mind is a little bit like the waves on the ocean or on a lake. And depending on atmospheric conditions, i.e. the weather, it can be tremendously turbulent and chaotic and energetic, or it could be flat, just totally calm and everything in between. And that's the surface. But if you drop down, even in the midst of typhoons and hurricanes in the ocean where the waves are 40 50 60 feet if you drop down 100 feet or so gentle undulations even in the most turbulent conditions well the metaphor is like you can drop into your mind in that way drop into your body in that way so that even though the surface is really turbulent and a lot of the content of that is how Horrible! This moment is how much of what? A, how much of a failure I am? How like I'm on the way out, or I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I'm too this, or I'm too that? And then you just drop underneath it. You don't try to shut off the waves of the ocean. Put a nice big sheet of plexiglass over the Atlantic Ocean. No, I'm sorry, that's not possible. You don't. You can't suppress the thoughts. But if you drop underneath them, then you're tapping into this other. Form of intelligence, this superpower we call aware. You can just be aware of the waves and not take the story of each wave personally at all. You can see how much you take it personally. That's part of the practice, is like, oh, I'm not supposed to take it personally, but oh my God, I'm taking it so personally. But you can be aware of that. You see, that's the superpower. It's like no matter what comes up, You can hold it in awareness and then you can ask yourself, is my awareness of this pain, which of course we're going to say is my pain, is my awareness of my pain Mm -hmm. actually suffering? Mm -hmm. And this is something you can do. This is a laboratory experiment and you got the lab. Is my awareness of my anxiety anxious? Is my awareness of my pain suffering? Mm -hmm. And just be honest with yourself. Take a look and see. And I'm going to just say that from the experience of hundreds of thousands of people who have in there, that the answer is universally, no, it's not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what's going to happen in the next moment? It's going to come back. And then I'm going to <laughs> hey, but remember, mindfulness is all about staying in the present moment. So not fair to actually say, that's just more thinking about the future. And that's just thinking so we can be aware of that, too. So, whether it's a thought, whether it's an emotion, whether it's a sensation, you just hold it all with equanimity. Well, that's a practice. That's why you have to exercise the muscle. But the more you practice, the more it integrates into your life. Well, I so appreciate your your
0: teaching this. And
1: thank you. It almost feels so commonsensical (laughs) that it doesn't feel like. I mean, Framing it as a teaching, but it's just like just common sense. I mean, yeah. you start to play around with experience, and you realize I've got this other capacity to just attend, to pay attention, and that's the gateway into awareness. Yeah. And so, it's not about coming more aware. Our awareness is infinite. It's like right. the universe. That, right. I challenge anybody to find the center of your awareness or the periphery or circumference of it. I don't think you'll find it. It's just like the universe. There's like, it is boundless and it's already yours. Our challenge with what we have to work at is accessing it because it gets kind of overgrown with brambles and thorns and sort of all these twigs and vines and stuff like that, which is all generated by our thought habits.
0: Yeah. Well, John, I wonder, maybe as a way of closing, you'd like to say, or let's see, one of the questions that's coming up for me is given all the things that are happening in our lives and our world, if you want to say a few sentences about what gives you hope these days, despite all of the challenges or right in the midst of the challenges, what is it that gives you hope? Looking
1: out the window gives me hope. My grandchildren give me hope. My children give me hope. The air and the sun and the moon give me hope. The Ukrainians give me hope. My colleagues and friends in Ukraine who are teaching mindfulness give me hope. Response of the world to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria right now. It's like we focus on the horror, which is, of course, but that's already over. I mean, it it happened and it's over. So it's not like it doesn't give me the opposite of hope. There's enormous sadness and empathy and compassion for the survivors and those who have lost. But look at also immediate outpouring of people with their bare hands rescuing whoever it's possible to rescue, which is almost like unfathomably impossible under 10 stories of concrete collapsed floors and apartment house. But people rise to the occasion and do whatever it is that we can do. And there are examples of that everywhere. That gives me hope. Yeah, yeah. And it also gives me hope that there are people out there like Paul Hawken and Kaz Tanahashi and all sorts of people who are very deeply grounded in, uh, I'll use this vocabulary because I'm talking to you, the Zen experience, okay, and the Soto Zen tradition, and they are out there in a very rigorous but beautiful way, both on the artistic side and on the environmental science side, Mm -hmm. demonstrating that there's a lot we can do Mm -hmm. and that we absolutely have to do to relate how we are in relationship to the planet, which means how we are in relationship to the way we use energy, to the way we understand what it means to live through 24 hours and so forth. And now we have to change our own behaviors as individuals and as a species. So that that just gives me boundless hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, Paul Hawkins' work very hopeful about drawdown and regeneration is a new book exactly. yeah, coming out and Kaz Tanahashi, amazing being, artist, teacher, Dogen, translator. Yeah. yeah and also coming out with a book about this and the example of Costa Rica
1: and, and mentioning that yeah. perhaps, I don't remember exactly how he framed it, but the, the fact that Costa Rica got rid of its military yeah so so you could say, well, that's just some idiosyncratic thing, but maybe that's kind of a lesson that the amount of wealth that we spend yeah. defending ourselves against each other is insane. And there must be some wiser, cheaper way to actually befriend our commonality as human beings, whether we live on one side of the earth or the other, and to stop telling ourselves the stories that we do that actually elevate us, the home of the brave and the land of the free and the home of the brave. And that big narrative depends on the color of your skin, though, as to how that unfolds as we're beginning to see. And that's not just kind of idle wokeism. This is actuality that when it doesn't want to be faced, then you label it woke and you write it off. But yeah. there are forces at work that are far bigger. And I really love that we're
0: yeah. beginning to recognize the full spectrum of American history, for instance. Yeah. Well, John, I so appreciate you. And I know you, you, you're, you might be too humble to realize this, but I think you've brought these practices, mindfulness practice, awareness practice. I think m- many of us, me certainly, Stand on your your shoulders. Um, I prefer the link arms for, but I hear what you're saying and I am touched by it. And that ultimately, it just might save us. It just like that's yeah, it just just might save us. It just might, yeah. Well, it's I think of it as that we are all we are all sacred beings, and that this ultimately, this teaching is a way of just uncovering, accessing what is and allowing the sacredness of our beings to to emerge and and help and heal and connect each other. So I just want to thank you for, for all of your wonderful work in this. That's very beautiful, Mark. Very beautiful. I thank you for saying
1: that. So yeah, absolute pleasure. Congratulations on your new book. May it be incredibly effective in transforming people's
0: hearts and minds and yeah, the world. Yeah. Finding clarity a book about compassionate accountability, our next topic. Thank you so much. It's really a joy to spend this time with you. Okay. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.